What up, boo? Hey, baby cakes. How are you, sweet girl? I'm so strong. Are you? Weightlifting. Tiny <laughs> dumbbells. <laughs> I did three but. sets, and now I'm going to tell you about the benefits of weightlifting with dumbbells. Resistance exercise improves cardiovascular function and <laughs> testosterone. <laughs> I told Bonus. you. I told you. I told I freaking told you. <laughs> So how's it going, Luke? Is this uh, is this uh, let's make fun of Gomer right out the gate day? Yeah, I'll relax. I can't relax, man. I just ran a parish mission, and we didn't have musicians, so I used my <laughs> iPad. <laughs> Here is our king. Here, Here is, is our Lord. Lord. Here is our... Ah, uh, man. I just... Man, I wish we could have Bob Rice on every... On every show, like if if Catching Foxes was a was a talk show, I would want Bob Rice to run the music, and I would just say you could only do like praise and worship songs from 1997 to 2000. That's Nothing awesome. else. Yeah, tonight I, uh, I I was texting someone and I said I don't know what songs to play. This is not my thing. And he goes, well, what are you playing? And I said, Blessed be your name, the 2005 version. And I'm like. You know the problem is when you're just when, when you're just playing music in the background. Well, that's one thing you can play. You know any little playlist. I would have. Did you play "Silence" by Blindside? No, Gordley, uh, you I had played, one opportunity. I played I five forty at a <laughs> wedding. Cannot, no, I did a, not. I did oh, not. That would be a classic <laughs> you move. It's like what song is on your mind that's just really you know hitting, pulling on the heartstrings. <laughs> What's the one thing Gomer's done lately? Let's talk about that ad nauseum. That's my mo. And no, it's gone the next. It's day. not necessarily yeah. like the. It's not. It's uh, no. I don't want to turn this. I don't want to turn this into the make fun of Gomer hour. So I won't. No, please, let's do that. No, I'm not going. No, I refuse. Due to the carnivore diet, I have a huge amount of emotional resiliency. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, did you hear the one Patreon comment where a person said she she shared the podcast? With her, her priest friend who said, it's not funny enough to be a comedy podcast and not Catholic enough to be a, a Catholic podcast. Well, could not have been a better a better statement. Cut me to my core in so many ways. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, gosh, we're terrible. No, that priest doesn't have a sense of humor, Luke. It's all about them. <laughs> That's how I choose to view it. Listen, glass is half empty or I'm going to throw the glass in their face. That's the only way to look at life. <laughs> Good day, sir. A good day, sir. Have you ever been? You've never been slapped by a woman, have you? Uh, yes. When? Uh, in third grade. That doesn't count. Well, she beat the shit out of me. So, <laughs> so you know, there's a lot there. There's a lot to unpack, Luke. <laughs> <laughs> Renee, what have you done to my beautiful face? <laughs> I, I'm gonna fall now. I'm only gonna be attracted to people who can crush cans of Bud Light in a masculine way, yet have feminine overtones. Yeah, <laughs> I thought you were gonna say something like who can crush Bud Light between their legs. <laughs> no, why? Do, everyone always assumes I'm like the dirty one. Why does I everyone know. always think that, Luke? Because you give them plenty of reasons why. That's true. That's true. Okay. Yeah, okay. That's fair. Uh, no, but did the parish mission go well? Were hearts changed? Was 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 the Lord Jesus Christ in His glory praised? So I'll say yes to the second one, and this is what I'm going to say. So I'm not doing the parish mission. I'm just running it for my own parish mm. with our own parochial vicar, which makes it easy. Oh, and, so you know uh, you could have hired your old boy Luke to come out and give the parish mission. 
Yep, sure could have. I'm <laughs> just kidding. I'd be the worst parish missioner guy. <laughs> like, like, why? Why does that guy doing the parish mission have a glass of gin in his hand? <laughs> well, let me tell you, kids, about the war. What war? <laughs> he just keeps crapping on boomers going, and this, you know how boomer secretaries are. Oh, <laughs> my right guy in the back. He gets it. No, the um, the the who was that? So I was going to say, here's the thing with the mission. I was saying this to to the. Father Kingsley, he was like, you know, yesterday we just had to slog through everything in order to get to today. And I said, whoa, 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 whoa. When it comes to parish missions, there are two kinds of parish missions. The here's three insights and then, you know, everything else is inspirational. Take it or leave it. I said, and then there are those that are more like theological catechetical. I said, yours are theological catechetical, which means you're giving them information that'll that'll be the scaffolding on their faith. It's not just like I walked away feeling great about what you said, but I walked away and I got to think about some stuff, you know? And so he's doing the, you know, he's a Nigerian priest and newly ordained and his, um, he has some background in the charismatic renewal and stuff. He said, he kind of distances himself a little bit from that. Um, Not entirely, but a little bit, but he said, uh, I'm going to do a parish mission on the power of the blood of Jesus. So yesterday was the Old Testament sacrifice. Why is there blood? What does the blood do? And then today was like understanding the New Testament vision of blood. And then tomorrow is going to be like applying the power of the blood of Jesus to your life. But I thought he did an excellent, an excellent job. I was literally on the keyboard because he has, you know, he has a thick accent. I was like picking up the scripture verses and I was like furiously typing them. Click, 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 send. And I would put them up on the screen behind him. So look pretty good. Hey, there you are. There you go. Can you have a thing where, uh, from a scene of there will be blood of uh, Daniel Day Lewis when he's doing his like repenting thing and screaming and yeah, yeah, we can do it. Cool. I'll put Sweet. I'll put that at the beginning. I've never watched that film all the way through, and I really regret it. I've heard it's some people call it the best film of the aughts. Ooh, I've never watched it. I don't know if I'm a. It's I believe it's directed by uh, oh I forget his name, not Wes Anderson, um, Cohen. Paul Thomas Anderson, I think, or Paul. Uh, give me this is going to drive me crazy. Do you mind if I'm um, typing it up right now? Who he, directed There Will Be Bud? Paul Thomas Anderson. Paul Thomas Anderson. So he also did The Master, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Got some real Australian creep vibes out of that one. Paul Thomas Anderson is a director that I understand why people think that he's great. I only find his movies to be very good, not great. It's just weird enough that I'm like, ah, I just have, I, I understand why people think he's one of the best, and I completely respect it. But I'm not going to be lining up every time he has a movie to go and see it. Mm. Cohen, like Cohen Brothers, you tell me when, you tell me where, I'm there. I will pay whatever. Uh, Scorsese, you tell me when, you tell me where, I will pay it. Uh, who else? Uh, um, I'm sure there are more people. Of course, I'm drawing a blank now. But I, I want to feel that way about Paul Thomas Anderson, but I just don't. Same thing with uh, West Anderson films. I guess I have a thing with with Andersons. Yeah. Oh, man, there's a picture of them all gathered together with Emily Watson and Philip Seymour Hoffman. Oh, I miss that guy. I, oh, tragic. Tragic. So he also directed Punch Drunk Love. Interesting. There will be blood... Whew, what else have we got? <clears throat> the master. I don't know the master. It's uh, on. It, he takes the the. Uh, it's basically a. It um, is a film about the id, the ego, and the super ego, 
and he uses the guy who starts Scientology as like a as a framework to tell that story, but it's not really based on that guy, and it's not the story of Scientology either. But it uses it as... It tells the story of Freddie Quell, a World War II Navy veteran struggling to adjust to a post-war society who meets Lancaster Dodd Hoffman, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, a religious, a leader of a religious movement known as The Cause. Dodd seems sees something in Quell and accepts him into the movement. Freddie takes a liking to The Cause and begins traveling with Dodd's family to the East Coast to spread his teachings. Hmm. I forget, who's the name of the guy that started Scientology? L. Ron Hubbard. Boy, is that a screwed up thing. Oh, so screwed up. So weird. If you ever want to understand it, just watch the South Park show on Scientology. It is brilliant, but it is hysterical from beginning to end. And then the more you dive into it, it's like, oh, this is is it. This is what they actually believe. At the bottom of the screen, they literally flash, this is what they actually believe or something like that. (laughs) I know. Usually to hear the secret doctrine, you have to be in the church for several years, Stan. Are you ready to hear the truth? I I guess. You see, Stan, there is a reason for people feeling sad and depressed. An alien reason. It all began 75 million years ago. Back then, there was a galactic federation of planets, which was ruled over by the evil Lord Xenu. Xenu thought his galaxy was overpopulated, and so he rounded up countless aliens from all different planets, and then had those aliens frozen. The frozen alien bodies were loaded onto Xenu's galactic cruisers, which looked like DC-8s, except with rocket engines. The cruisers then took the frozen alien bodies to our planet, Earth, and dumped them into the volcanoes of Hawaii. The aliens were no longer frozen, they were dead. The souls of those aliens, however, lived on and all floated up towards the sky. But the evil Lord Xenu had prepared for this. Xenu didn't want their souls to return, and so he built giant soul catchers in the sky. The souls were taken to a huge soul brainwashing facility, which Xenu had also built on Earth. There, the souls were forced to watch days of brainwashing material, which tricked them into believing a false reality. Xenu then released the alien souls, which roamed the earth aimlessly in a fog of confusion. At the dawn of man, the souls finally found bodies which they could grab onto. They attached themselves to all mankind, which still to this day causes all our fears, our confusions, and our problems. Scientology is just a big, fat global scam. Yep. What? Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man, that's great. Uh, It's very easy to... Again, I, I believe we talked about this on a very earlier episode of ours. How easy would it be to start a cult? I say very easy. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, but today's cult would have to have, I think, maybe five or six different memes involved in it. So it would have to be like uh, an organic thing, like have an organic bent to it. Um, it would have to like, so the, see, I don't think it necessarily would have to have that. It just is one of the ways that you could do it. Yeah. It's like a marketing approach. So it's like, what's the object of fear? Uh, power lines and Wi-Fi. Okay. Got it. What is the thing that's going to save us? Um, uh, acai berries and, uh, lavender smells. And then all of a sudden we're going to, as a cult, we're going to make money by producing essential oil type things. 
and our cult is also going to have a business, and we recruit people into the business, into the cult, and we recruit people into the cult, into the business, and it just becomes this self-replicating replicating machine. And I would say that we're just not ugly enough that we could get by as cult leaders. I beg to differ. Speak for yourself. I am ugly enough to get by as a cult leader. Because <laughs> you've got your weird, like, hint, not, not, not Hindu, let's not mock any sort of nice <laughs> a religion. You have some of your uh, Karma Sutra stuff. Where it's like whatever old like old like old man people get all excited about that, <laughs> and then you have your like rich you have your I'm a rich celebrity cult, which we're not that. But then no. you have your like I can't think of like you're kind of just like average. Oh wow, it's like weird average Joe guy just started like the Book of Mormon or whatever, and like starts <laughs> his own thing. Like that's us. We're like your Brigham Youngs of the cults. If, if okay, if okay, we were to do one. So we're not. We're not really the founder, per se. Are we the first follower? I think we're the ones to finally go, oh, you know where this would go well? Patreon. And then all of a sudden, it's like the money starts just to come. And we're like, oh, that's right. You can get rich off of this. And then we well, go. Well, you know, they, they say with cults, but you, may, wait, you make more money as a leader, but you have more fun as a follower. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, no creep. Man, listen, I have to replace the uh, carpet in the master bedroom. Actually, I uh, it I I don't like the term uh, a master bedroom because it you know kind of implies uh, the master who owns his slaves or whatever you know. So uh, that's where I do get a little woke, and I like calling it that. Yeah, that's where the term a uh, master bedroom comes comes from. As in the master's bedroom? Yes, as in like the owner of the estate and of the people who live there. Well, couldn't it just be the head of the estate? Like pre-slavery I mean, it stuff? it could, but it like... Um... All right, here we go. I'm Googling it. Please talk. So the owner suite, as it's called now, amongst me and my woke brethren. All right, here we go. The logic behind the move, according to the reports, is that the term master canosa room is owned by a man. Furthermore, the loaded historical context of the word master... Oh, gosh. See? Told you. So I don't know if I agree with calling it the owner suite, but that's what people tend to call it now, is the owner suite. And so, Looking for a spacious master bedroom in your new house? No, you most certainly are not, you racist, sexist bigot. There you go. <laughs> and then I was like, exactly. So I have to replace the carpet in the owner's suite and in what will be the nursery. My point is, everyone, join our call at patreon.com slash cf, patreon.com slash cf. All right. Where they're... <laughs> Where there are no masters, only owners. <laughs> Just undelivered promises. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. Uh, I have a topic. The main thing about social media is that it must be up to date. And right now, everybody is talking about the coronavirus. My own archdiocese has asked its parishes to no longer offer the chalice at mass, which means my extremely gluten-sensitive daughter didn't get to communicate last Sunday. <laughs> Started laughing. Well, the fine folks over at CatholicSocial.media and their parent company, Prenger Solutions Group, are responding to the questions that you are pouring into them. And here is their solution for you and your parish. Coronavirus.CatholicSocial.media is hosting a webinar on March 13th at 11 a.m. Registering ahead of time gets you the video if you can't be there live. This webinar is not talking about what dioceses are already doing. Hand washing, no sign of peace, no chalice, etc. But how we can actually leverage the tools, especially of the internet out there, 
to continue doing ministry to our people, especially if the virus breaks out even more than it already is. The webinar, March 13th at 11 a.m. Central Time, will be co-hosted by the founder of Catholic Social Media and CEO of the Pranger Solutions Group, Nick Pranger, and Father Scott Hastings, who's the Judicial Vicar and Vicar for Clergy at the Archdiocese of Omaha. Again, the webinar is March 13th at 11 a.m. Central Standard Time at coronavirus.catholicsocial.media. Head over there today to reserve your seat. Thanks to catholicsocial.media for sponsoring this show. All right, so I actually, everyone, I decided, hey, you know what? We have a good, we're on five years, we're, we're almost on our five-year anniversary, do you realize that, of actually a releasing shows, huh? for the most part, without stopping. For the most part. April April 20th, 420. A- yeah. So the first episode is called Create, Don't Just Consume. April 20th, 8 p.m., 2015. Explain this to me. Episode two is called My Poofy Hair, April, <laughs> also April 20th, 2015, at 9 p.m. Huh. You must have done something. Do you remember? And your- then April 23rd at 12 a.m. You know what? Maybe it was trying to get Apple to recognize us, and so yeah. we released a couple. That may be, yeah. <laughs> then we took a month off. <laughs> <laughs> It released on May, May 31st, <laughs> April 23rd to May 31st. Oh, that is so us. <laughs> yeah, then we get to June 30th, then we take a month off, <laughs> July 20th, and then we're pretty consistent ish after that. Yeah, we're That's consistent. Classic us. We don't have an actual start date because we're too lazy to commit <laughs> to anything. Hey, but here's the deal. We're not so lazy that we stopped at episode eight and that's when it died. Yeah. So. But I mean it's also it's just it's very, very us. It is very us. <laughs> it is very us. Which I'm kinda... gonna see if that hold on, hold on, hold on, real quick. Go ahead. <laughs> I'm just listening to the intro music on oh, the first one. Can you one play that... it? Can you some? Yeah, I'll, I'll slap it in here. Oh, it is so. I was. I remember hearing it, just being like, "What?" <laughs> Welcome to the inaugural episode of Catching Foxes on LayEvangelist.com. Catching Foxes is a weekly discussion show on all things culture and the impact that it has on our faith, especially for young adults. My name is Michael Gormley, and I'm joined by my co-host, Luke. Because I'm going to be honest, you home run with the font for Catching Foxes. You hit a home, <laughs> I mean, you created the font and the logo in not even five minutes. Yeah, that was fun. Stroke a genius. <laughs> and then the intro music. <laughs> it's, you were trying to make us seem high-minded. We had such noble plans. We, we, were gonna, we really we did. did. We were going to have like different um, sources and unpack c- crazy ideas. And instead, we were like, you know, it's easy. Let's just rip off everything we love. And here we are. And here we are. And you and idiots ate it up like it was candy. <laughs> <laughs> that raspberry flavor made from the secretions of the anal glands of various rodents. <laughs> Enjoy your candy. <laughs> oh, man. Beaver. Anal glands. <laughs> hey, this, really? This is no joke. I heard a podcast two weeks ago while I was at uh, O'Hare Airport, which is now my new home away from home, because there are no direct flights out of Cincinnati anymore. Ugh. So, so all I do is hang out that little, like, you know that, like, uh, kind of, like, it's basically the United Terminal over, um, over at 
I were at O'Hare. That is my second home. There's the coach store that I always um, I always um, walk past and go, I should buy Aaron a thing. There is a, a sushi restaurant right right next to that. There's mm. the hippie health place that is across that is across from the coach store that doesn't offer anything all that good. It's nice. Okay. So I heard this podcast from it's from the Dawson's um, Creek. I, I'm just kidding. I, I already I made that joke. I apologize. <laughs> we did. We Dawson's. Did. Da- oh, by the way, I forgot to include it into the show notes. Classic catching foxes. So sorry, everyone. That was that was my fault. Um, so from the Dawson's <laughs> Society podcast. This is uh, this is from an episode called uh, "Dreaming with Demons" uh, by Matt Tan. Matt Tan. I think he's like a theologian or um, he's a philosopher. I'm I am so impressed with like with like I'm this dude. So heads up. This is going to be a bit of a Luke going on a long tangent with with Gomer, then sharing his thoughts afterwards. Uh, but I uh, stick with me. I think this is going to be really interesting. I'm going to do my best to keep this brief. Sound sound good? Are you okay yep, with that? I'm all on board. All right. So now I also I want to add. I'm just doing my best to try to uh, to try to uh, um, recap what Tan um said. It is phenomenal. So please go and listen to that. It is very um very good. He, and he's basically talking about when we when we refer to when we refer to sloth like what like what is the um heart of it? And he quotes a bunch of people from there's this one guy who I'm drawing a blank on his name and I did put it in the notes as well as the one church father from the fourth century. What was the name of this? Um... Dreaming with Demons with Matt ah, Tan. by Matt Tan. It's, okay. I, this guy, we need Matt more. Tan. This guy is very, very good. I was so impressed. Oh, with this. yeah. Evagrius of yes. Pontus. Evagrius. Evagrius <laughs> of Pontus. <laughs> E-V-A-G. No, E-V-A-G-R-I-U-S. Why isn't he a saint? Uh, he probably murdered someone. Yeah. dad. It happens. So he's a desert father. He might be just grandfathered. I'll, I'll find out. Keep going. Okay, so tell so, me, like, what specifically did they... Okay, so I'm going to do my best to kind of break down the... Like, like, there's so much of this talk that really hit me. I, I'm going to do my best to try to provide a summary. It is not going to be remotely adequate, nor do I want to try to steal from it. So I'm just going to try to explain the parts that I think are important to get to my point. But it, it yeah. is so good. So please go and listen to it either... Either I'm either I'm right now, then come back to this, or or try try to listen after because it is fantastic. So, okay, so you have I'm lazy sloth, which is uh, I'm going to use I'm, I'm going to use the term sloth as well as like a CDAD kind of in the same in the same vein here. So you um, have the sloth that that we all I'm going to talk about, which is you know us in college just playing games for hours, you know, on end. Feeling like being like lazy, but he actually says that's just kind of like one that's really more on the surface level. Kind of stuff. When you get to the heart of it, he uses this example of you have a person who is uh, has has to give a talk, and they say on their list for things they're going to do that day, I have to prep this talk. But instead, they connect with an old friend really quick, and then they respond to ten emails, and then they uh, get in, then they have to uh, call their mom about something going on like that that um weekend. Then they have this other thing at um, work that oh I got to go and I'm talk to this person over here. I've got to take care of on this project right here. Oh, you know what would be kind of cool is blah, blah 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 blah. And so we do all this other stuff besides the one thing we were supposed to do that day, which is prep for this talk. And those other stuff that 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 we do, 
can even be good or to the outside outside world seem like we are a you know good workaholic or someone who is very productive a thing we all admire they just they like work so hard and they're just so exhausted but they haven't actually done the one thing that they were actually meant to yeah. do that yeah. day and he says that's the heart of sloth Hi, my name is Father Mike Schmitz, and this is Ascension Presents. Um, so I know that a lot of us, a lot of people, struggle with procrastination. And, and when I say procrastination, you probably know what I know, is that procrastination does not mean I'm doing nothing. Procrastination doesn't mean I'm doing nothing. Procrastination means I'm doing everything except for the one thing I'm supposed to be doing, doesn't it? And it's the sin of pride, which is the movement of the heart, that leads to that. It is really talking about self-autonomy. And, and in that book, Snell makes this point. He says that the heart of sloth is not a desire to sleep more. The heart of sloth is actually a desire for, wait for it, autonomy. Let that sit for a moment. And so, so let's just like unpack that a bit. You have a thing that you have to do. And instead of being obedient to that, you like reject that for whatever um reason. Say, I'm going to do my own, my like, my like own thing for a bit, even if it seems innocent or even if it's within your own thoughts, which is, but it, like what's actually going on is you're giving into this vice to re, to really reject reality of this thing that you have to be engaging with, but you aren't. So you're trying to find other things that you're able to do, but you're actually I'm like divorcing yourself from yourself by trying to make it all about yourself. This, if you do that enough, you really hate the situation that you're in. So you don't like your job, you don't like this project, you don't like this person that you know, and then it kind of leads to hatred with life of like, oh, if I just lived here, if I had been on this major in school, if I had done this or that, life would be better. And then it really goes into this real, this like real like resentment with God. And you become angry at God and almost reject God because you want to do whatever you want to do. First, it makes the sun appear to slow down or stop so that the day seems to be 50 hours long. Then it forces the monk to keep looking out the window and rush from his cell to observe the sun in order to see how much longer it is to the ninth hour, 3 p.m. And to look about in every direction in case any of the brothers are there. Then it assails him with hatred of his place, his way of life, and the work of his hands. That love has departed from the brethren, and that there is no one to console him. If anyone has recently caused the monk grief, the demon adds this as well to amplify his hatred of these things. It makes him desire other places where he can easily find all that he needs and practice an easier, more convenient craft. After all, Pleasing the Lord is not dependent on geography, the demon adds. God is to be worshipped everywhere. It joins to this the remembrance of the monk's family and his previous way of life and suggests to him that he still has a long time to live, raising up before his eyes a vision of how burdensome the ascetic life is. How often do people, when they're upset with work, go to catholicjobs.com? Or they go onto LinkedIn, or they apply for other jobs, or they um, think about what if I had done this or this or that. And the problem is, we keep, and it's such an enticing thing, and we keep giving into it that it actually um, like makes things 
become worse and worse. Because again, it's all about I want to control my you know like own reality, and the only way that I can do that is to reject what the natural order is right now. Because if I'm supposed to do this project right, like right now, but I don't want to do it because of my pride, I don't want to be like obedient to my own state of life, my spouse, my uh, job, all of these other things that actually like demand the thing out of me, even though they're the good thing, the thing I'm supposed to be on the, that I'm really supposed to be, I'm doing them right now to have the things that brings about happiness when it demands a thing out of me. And I don't want to do that because of my pride. I think I'm just escaping for a bit, but it's actually like a vice that is, you know, going on here. Virtually, you know, everyone's going to experience some of the deadly sins, but there was one of the deadly sins, one of those things that comes against every person that came against every one of them. And that was what they called acedia, A-C-E-D-I-A, acedia. And later on, St. Thomas Aquinas called it sloth or sloth. What then starts to happen is people tend to like, and you see this a lot with people who have a sex addiction, uh, they will tend to, they'll tend to glorify the past or they will really look towards the past. If I had just been with this girl, if I had been with that girl, if I had just been this major, if I had done that, if I, they, they tend to think about like what could have been. And if you think about it, that's all that like lust actually is, is just a desire for a thing that isn't really unnatural, that quite often isn't really real. It's just this fake fantasy that we want to try to, like, we want to try to entertain for a, for a bit to the point where maybe someone will, will like like masturbate or they'll like do a thing to try to like get the high out of that and it but it's fake and so it just ends in bitterness which then keeps the cycle going you get more angry at god angry at life angry at your situation angry you know at everyone always trying to find that out where you can actually have control as opposed to the one thing that you have to do because if you did that you'd have to you'd have to let you can't be in control you would have to you would have to give that up no, uh, I think this ties into that comment that you made reflecting on – what is that cartoon that everyone loves? Rick and Morty, where the guy, he, beca- he does all these kooky things and then he turns himself into a pickle. And yeah, the, yeah. the therapist says, you just don't want to do the hard work. You know, and it's like I will busy myself with a trillion things to not do exactly. the one thing you needful. To the point of where I will – yeah, I will change my being – to not have to go like inwards to really do the work to help my family. Well, because you have to confront yourself. Yeah. So how do you over overcome this stuff? And in the talk, he really gives out. Uh, he has has a couple of really recommendations from that from the saint guy. Ever, oh, ever like whatever. Sorry, the guy who we don't know if like, he's a saint or not. Did we find out if he's, he's a, saint? a saint in the Syriac Orthodox Church in the Armenian Church? They're probably more Catholic than than the Roman um, Catholic Church is um, right now. So let's just um, go with it. <laughs> so he says one is you want to pray the Psalms. I thought that was very interesting because for me, I think this is the big issue of of mine with like especially wanting control. I really like I really identified with this just wanting to have con- control over over stuff. And I and I. I've always thought it's been weird how when I pray the liturgy of the hours that the Psalms tend to speak to me. And I was like, why is that? And I think because it's like a reordering of things to their right state. Where when we when we really pray the Psalms, we're starting to view God for who he is and who we are and our place within that. Mm. Two, this is gonna blow this is gonna blow your mind. Commitment. 
Okay. And I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> um, talking about this need to say, I'm in this thing. I'm going to accept my, you know, like, own reality. And he talks about I, uh, a bit about this desire we have. So, like, can't we just praise God anywhere? Can we just be, like, mobile and do whatever? It's like, well, no. That's still it's that's about us being in in control, not God, not dealing with God with where we are right now. So being committed to the things that like we need to be committed to. Mm. They called it the noonday devil. Why would they call it the noonday devil? Imagine living a hut in the desert. So you get up in the morning and you do your morning routine at the cool of the morning. It's nice out, but all of a sudden at ten o'clock or so, the sun's right above, and from roughly ten o'clock until two o'clock, it seems like the sun's not moving. The cool of the morning has passed, and the night's not here yet where you get to have your meal and you get to kind of relax. It's just stay in your hut and pray. And it seems like nothing's changing and nothing's happening. This is essentially the, I mean, if you really want to get down to it, this is uh, a microcosm of a midlife crisis. So then, then here's this other part that was very, I thought this was completely fascinating. He talked about the need to be attentive. And he quotes Giussani, the guy from Communion and Liberation. He's this Italian guy helps helps start this movement. Who's just fan? Who's just fan? Unmatastic. And he and this is so interesting. He actually compares attentiveness to what we would uh, call what we would call gazing. And he says when we like like when we gaze at something, that is an act. It's a thing that we're doing to this other object. I'm going. Uh, I'm going um, to gaze at this screen here. I am gazing at this. This screen is an object that I'm doing this act on. But when we are a when we are like attentive, that implies reception. I'm going to. Uh, I'm going to like receive what is going on here. I'm going to be like open to what's going on on, on my screen. I'm going to take it all in. And th- think about it this way: How often? Do we talk about gazing at the Eucharist, or I'm um, gazing at like other things, which I don't think is uh, think is um, like necessarily bad. But I very I'm um, rarely ever think about how am I being attentive to the Eucharist, or a, or a, I'm attentive to the people going on around me. And one big thing that I've really harped on, like within my own life over the past couple of past couple. Of months is the need for more um, receptivity and our approach to you know th- uh, the church and all this stuff that helped kind of unpack I think um, like a big issue which is why is it like how can we be more present to what's going on while being receptive and it's to try to be like, attentive to what you know like what is that's really kind of like I'm going to just like absorb everything that is happening I'm going to let it absorb me let it like penetrate me and really t- take it all in. Hmm. How do you reach younger members who prefer text messages and don't use email because they're smart and aren't annoying boomers? If someone is missing during a weekend, they don't get a bulletin and are in the dark. Oh, no, the dark. Making your emails beautiful. Who the f*** has the time? Product Silbo. That's who. Silbo. The fastest and easiest way to reach your parish. Send beautiful emails and text messages. To those millennials. Schedule your messages. You can even import your um, list or let people sign up lightning fast on their smartphone. Get up and running in 10 minutes. 
which is six times as long as Gomer needs. Gorgeous email templates help you lead with the beautiful. Thanks, Bishop Barron and your friends that could kick my butt if they wanted to because I made fun of their gigantic muscles in every picture now that we always see on, on Facebook. It's a little bit weird. Awesome analytics. See your impact via stats and graphs. Special offer. Oh, this is cool. Free- oh, this wow. is cool. This is cool. You read this, Luke. Special offer 500 free sign-up cards for your pews when you use the Catching Foxes link. Get Silbo.com slash foxes. 500 free sign-up cards for your pews when you use the I'm Catching Foxes link. Get Silbo.com slash foxes. That's fantastic. Because we all know one thing about foxes. They like to get Silbo. Silbo events. we offer live training for all of our parishes. Love your communication again. Silbo, the um, fastest and easiest way to reach your parish. Mm-hmm. That's G-E-T-S-I-L-B-O dot com slash foxes, baby. One more time for the kids. G-E-T. S-I-L-B-O dot com slash foxes. Third time for my lady friends, just my wife, Erin. <laughs> no. Thank you to the good people at One Parish for allowing us to destroy your nice bullet points for, for this ad and for sponsoring this episode of Catching Foxes. Here's where it gets. Now, this is like the whole um, Luke Carey spin. This is and, I, and like and, I, and sorry, you everyone out there and like also you going, you have been like, I'm so patient. Thank you for indulge me but i have to go into all of this for this to make sense i'm gonna add the luke carey spin to it so this is how it's like impacting me right now in my own life so one major issue that i think a ton of people have is undefined work when you combine that with what we're talking about here in terms of sloth or hasidia plus you add in like a, a modern tech the ability for complete control over everything that we do, it ends in a disaster. And so, especially within I'm working for the church, the importance of wisdom and perseverance. And I pulled this from James chapter one, verses one through five. And we actually brought this up in the Exodus 90 group that I'm in. And the importance of um, wisdom and perseverance, which, which I think could also be, you know, be uh, called reception and action. What is the um, verse again? Uh, James chap- chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 5. Oh, okay. Yeah, got it. Count it all joy, brother. The, now, this is true within any real institution that you could work for. There's this uh, old story with SNL. I think it's um, David Spade who said that the day that he got there, he was handed a, like, um, a white pad of paper, shown his office, and that's the only direction he ever got. The place is, is like notorious for you either like die or you're gonna like do awesome here, and there's really no um, direction you are given. Other than that like may have changed now, but so much of what we do in the ch- in the church is just undefined work. How many people have you ever heard never really got a budget? Don't know how much they have. Don't know how much they are like meant to spend, even though they're told to like you know not go over the like budget. Don't get any direction from their pastor in terms of like I'm aware they are supposed to go. They don't. They don't get anything. And then what really tends to happen? I think they give into a thing like like a thing like sloth, and they feel overwhelmed, and they just start to they just um, they just start to daydream. They start to think about how life would be, would be better if they were doing like if they had been a like finance major. And then I think this could be one of the reasons why people are gone within twelve to eighteen months. Because you do that over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, and you're not able to really uh, like define your job, and you don't get any 
direction, it's awful. And so how do you fight that? I think one, you have to try to understand. Okay, so you have to do this budget. This is, I'm just, this is just an example because I have to do my budget at like work. So, and actually, I really like who, who I work for now because they do a great job with budget. Um, this isn't them. But perhaps it could be defined to another church institution I may or like may not have. We'll never know. I'm worked for. Yeah. We'll Maybe know. for years and years and never got a real budget. I don't know. Who knows? Whatever. The point is that when you encounter an obstacle like that and you don't know um, what to do, it's so easy to turn to what you can, con- you can con- control. And that then comes at the expense of the thing that I should be, I like, you know, like could be doing. And it actually pulls me from, it pulls me from reality. And then I get like into all this other stuff that I really shouldn't be. And it all seems fine and good at first. It's just, oh, how's my friend doing? How's this thing going? Oh, I wonder how my old school, you know, like all these. And then it turns into things that really don't like matter at all. And then you get, and that's where like all of the sloth stuff, that's where it becomes a monster as opposed to, uh, as opposed to like a pest. So what do you do? One, you have to you have to be receptive. What's the problem here? You have to really absorb what is actually going on. Why am I upset? What is the information I do have? What is the information that I don't have? And then that is like building on wisdom, being trying to be, be like attentive to what is actually going on here. And then once I'm starting to like once I start to absorb all of that, then I actually have the wisdom of what I need to do. Then I have to persevere. I have to go and I have to do it. And I can't stop just when things get hard. I need to keep going and going and going and going until it's done. And when you do that, when you like, and when you and when you embrace like wisdom, and we're able to really persevere through that, you're able to actually create really good stuff, which is when we're partaking in the divine life of God, when we're being creative. And that's, I think, for me, this has been really eye opening because I'm always tempted to like try to find control. Like, where can I find control in an area where I, when I don't, when I feel like I don't have any. Or I don't know what to do, or I'm scared, or I am, con- and I am confused, or I am, have some fear. My gut thing is to find what can I control, and quite often it really involves stuff that doesn't um, doesn't have anything to do with what's going on. And I'm done. That has been a lot of me. I'm sorry. I just need to unpack all of that. Tell me what you think. <laughs> uh, so number one, I got to point out who Dr. Matthew Tan is. As a Catholic theologian, his website is. AwkwardAsianTheologian.com. Isn't that wonderful? That is so hilarious. And his bio says he is the private secretary of Bishop Tony. Now, this is the best part. He's the author of two books, the most recent of which is Redeeming Flesh, The Way of the Cross with Zombie Jesus. He also runs the blog Divine Wedgie on the Pathios Catholic blog channel and will soon be launching his theological side project, Awkward AsianTheologian.com. That is hysterical. But um, tying into it, so the Latin, he points out that um, in one of his articles that I'll have linked in the show notes, he points out that the Latin translation of idol in some cases is actually the word uh, simulcra, simul, simulacra, sorry, simulacra, which is where we get the word simulation. 
And that touches on this whole, that set him off on this whole thing about this notion that sin, oftentimes when we think of sin, it's doing bad things. Whereas for St. Augustine, like, like objectively, yes, you're breaking a rule. You're doing something that is contradictory to the eternal law and the mind of God. But what about our subjective character of sin? St. Augustine says that us pursuing evil is us pursuing something good only with a screwed up desire being misdirected. And so he's like, we end up chasing the simulation of a good thing. And then I, this is what I love because he says, just think about like kind of what you were saying. And I was looking at this theologian. You were talking about like when we gaze at it, we are acting on the thing. Whereas the what, – what did you say the opposite of gaze? Not just receptivity. What was it? Attentiveness. Attentiveness. So you're gazing versus your, uh, your attentiveness. And so you're letting the thing inform you as opposed to you informing mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. And the most important thing that I learned is – like Christian humility is the opposite of what all of modern philosophy begins from because with Immanuel Kant and the subjective turn, right? Immanuel Kant was the, the universe is too much for me. The universe is too big for me. I can't understand it. I can't know it. So what do I do is I impose order on the universe. So it's my mind is the measure of all things. I'm imposing order, and that's where we get the phrase, a construct. You're imposing order into nonsense. And so the problem then becomes, for the modern man, it's always that gaze. It's always that form of conquest. Even when it disguises itself with the language of objectivity, it's really not. And so the idea of humility or attentiveness is that I'm letting the thing itself inform me rather than me imposing upon the thing, forcing my mental images on what the thing really should be. And so he talks about that, that simulation of going back and forth between, he's like, well, if I don't understand creation around me because of sin, the distortion of sin, I'm imposing my image onto the world, then that means, and I only really know myself in interacting with the things of this world, then I have a thinned out and distorted version of myself. I don't understand myself. I become the simulation. And then he says, well, if I understand God, if God can be known through the things he created, then that means that our sense of who God is, and this is a direct quote, is framed by our engagement with creation. It means that in sin, our perception of God becomes a simulation as well. I think that is incredible. All from the Latin word for idol, simulacra. And how often, like, you know what's funny is that when I hear that, my mind goes straight to men's conferences. Because <laughs> how much of it is trying to reclaim this masculine, you know, like, this, they're saying, like, we need more, like, more of the men of Christ, a men of God, a men of, like, how often do we hear this? I'm um, real men, I'm um, love Jesus. Yeah. That, that kind of stuff. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's this idea of, you know, you're right, like, because we're called to be part of the creative order of things. Yeah. But I think I think why I think I finally understand why why it rubs me the wrong way because they think in order to be masculine you have to you have to deny the feminine. And you can't be you can't be active unless you are receptive. That's why I think this book this part of and this is just like in my own life that I think this like part from the book of James like really hit me um, with this because you need wisdom and you need perseverance. You can't have both. 
I'm sorry. You uh, can't have one without the other. I, that's so funny that that sorry that's so interesting. He says this like like this like simulation. I think that's what that's why most of this like a masculine push or this push on like more like masculine stuff within the church fails in the long run, and men still don't go, and they still they still really don't believe, and they get all involved, and then it fades out because it lacks any sort of um, receptivity. So what 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 would you do to change it? In terms of receptivity, I think instead of wanting to, well, I would do exactly like what, um, like like what James um talks about here in this book is that like this need to understand what is wisdom and like also like perseverance. This whole idea of um, whatever I want might not be what God wants, and I need to always look to God first. As the creator and understand kind of what he was getting at here just in terms of sloth. Because I, I think like why I use a sloth example is that I think this is the sin of the church right now. This is what everyone for the most part deals with this. Yeah. Everyone. Snell says that even if unconsciously, sloth actually is an active overthrow of order. It is an active refusal to be subordinate to order. It is an active refusal to be a creature. Everyone. I mean, how like how often do we experience this in college? And how many like um, youth ministers get a job, sit in their office, and just stare at a wall for hours and don't know what to do? Or we try to um, design flyers, and then we make our own. Uh, we have our own flyer business on the side, or we you know do all this other stuff besides the one thing that we should be doing because we don't know what to do. Yeah, and that's where I think this idea of wanting of like this idea of uh, of wisdom is so important. That's where I think the church is – that's where the uh, magisterium is really important. And if we're not sure of, like, what we should be doing or what really sh- – or, like, what really should be going on, th- diving into her into her teachings and wanting to understand not just, like, what does she teach, but why does she teach this? I mean, how many people are all about the morality of the church – and don't pay attention to any any of the social justice stuff. And when you know Pope Francis speaks up, they say he doesn't know what what he, what he's. I'm talking about he he's a pope, not an economist. But everything that he's I'm saying is right in line with anything that came out of the mouth of of John Paul II or Benedict. Mm. It's not any more left or right. I mean, it, it could be it could be more more left in terms of in terms of his implementation. But of where of where it's coming from. It's not that I don't. I mean, from everything. I mean, from, like, again, this is more in terms of like um, social justice stuff. It's not that far off the mark from what's the things that John Paul II, that John Paul II, or you know, like even like Benedict like said. But what we care about is more this like wanting to paint the church in in my own of what I in the image of what I think the church is, as opposed to what she actually is. It is an active refusal to be subordinate to order. It is an active refusal to be a creature. It's sloth, honestly. I, mean, I, I think it actually does come down to like that's what sloth. It's just I like every. I'm doing everything I should be doing, but the one thing that I really like should be doing. It is a spiritual opiate. I mean, that's- you know, it's like or let's take the, like the Catholic dad who's never home. Now, I'm not saying this is you. But like you know, but who like truly is never home. 
Yeah. Because, and he's not involved in, you know, his kids' lives, and he barely talks to his wife because he just throws himself into his into his work, but then he justifies it all by saying, I'm doing this for my kids and for them. Yeah. Well, are you really doing that, or are you scared? Yeah. Are you scared that they're going to go poor? You know, and, and, like, those are valid fears. Those are very, very valid fears. And those are, but those are fears we have to confront as opposed to like take the Nietzsche route and then just let them like just kind of go, well, this is just what like drives everything I do now. So, (laughs) yeah, I I wrote a a parable one time, or not parable, fable, I don't know, story of um, a wife who always complained to her husband that he never does anything with the kids. Do you remember this at all? And until you take them to the park. No. And the wife's like, you never take him to the park. Take him to the park. So he takes him to the park, and he's on his phone, and his kids are, like, kind of annoyed. Daddy pushed me. You know, I'm over here. Daddy watched me, and he's, you know, distracted. But then he looks around at the park, and he realizes, like, oh, my God, this place is disgusting. And it's like, my kids are playing here. This is ridiculous. So he starts to pick up the trash and put it in the trash bins, and he realizes no one's emptying the trash bins. So they get home, and he calls the neighborhood council and says, Hey, what's going on? And, you know, he ends up having to get a lot of people. He goes next door and he's like, Hey, our, our neighborhood, you know, whatever you call them, the covenant isn't doing its thing. We need to get more people active out here. And so he starts picking up the trash by hand with his little trash bag. And then some other people come. He's like, you know, my kids play out here. Like we need to have this clean. And more people start joining him, seeing his example, the local news station, you know, comes out and does a piece on a, uh, uh, you know, a father lends a helping hand, inspires a neighborhood, gets the company to start getting their act together and managing the neighborhood property and all this stuff. And, you know, he eventually wins an award from the local uh, service committee group. And all the while, he still hasn't played with his kids. But he's done all of this other stuff. Mm-hmm. And the, not, the, the picking up, the cleaning, the uh, rallying support all became... An elaborate way of not playing with his kids. An elaborate way of not engaging. But damn it, he was doing so much good. He was so busy. He was so active. And he just couldn't. But it was, it was, everyone on the outside would praise him except his kids. They'll, they'll play with trash on the thing. They just want their dad to push them. And, you know, that really I, – I had this struggle back in 2008, 2009 when I was first started over at um, – over at uh, St. Bernard's in um, in Eureka. I don't know if you remember this or not, but before I actually started to listen to podcasts, I actually almost started a music podcast. Do you remember that? No. Uh-huh. I may not have. I may have never um, told you about it. So I almost started this music podcast called Turn My Face to the Wall. Uh, yeah, it's a line from a Beatles song. Just, just, just go with it. A very emotional one. So, um, well, hey, I'm glad you chose that one and not. She was just 17, if you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, that would have been very bad, and especially in that situation. So, um, uh, and so, and I would, and I like, I had a business plan. I had a friend design a logo for it. I recorded a couple, a couple of episodes. I think I even maybe like. I want to say I sent it to our buddy Tom and said, check this out and tell me what – I don't know why, but I feel like I did. Or, like, I think I told some guys in household about it. Um, I don't know why I feel like I, I, I'm sending it to Tom, but I could be totally, I could be totally wrong about that. Um, and I 
kind of had, I, I remember I was like praying or something, and I, and I had this thought of like, you know, this is all good, but one, how are you going to get the license to like play these songs in here? That's going to be like a ton of work. And two, what is this coming? Like, what's the opportunity cost of of this? All of my attention when I when I, I wasn't at um work was on was on this thing, as opposed to I was in the perfect stage of life. Right then, where I really needed to focus on my career, I wasn't married. I uh, had a ton of debt from from school and stuff, and I had the perfect opportunity. God had like said, "Here you go. Here's the thing that you can really dive into to help your life right yeah. now. You yeah. need, you know." And instead, my attention was on these other things. One, I think I even bought like a microphone and like. It was on all, like I, I I did like I went out like you know I went you know I bought a computer and instead of like paying off the stuff I was like oh but this is the thing that I, I but and I really was able to justify it in my head because I thought this is what God uh, um, wants me to do this is a good thing I've got the time I'm kind of have some money now and I remember just being like um like I don't it was probably around like 2009 or so I don't really remember exactly when. That I think it was through a conversation with with Uncle Wade, where I was, where he was like, "You need to be like you. You're like on the gold train right now. You need to really focus on like where you are and create business plans and other stuff for like these projects that you can do for your job right right now." And I just felt very convicted about that and really turned my time and my time and energy about because I I do have an entre I have this entrepreneurial part to me that I just really um, love, but I applied that to where I was. And then within like a year, I was, um, I was on the main admin, you know, because of all this different stuff that I was doing. And when, when you were, I'm talking about that story, it really reminded me of that because it was just, I had all this stuff going on around me, all these things that I could have been giving my time and my attention to, but I didn't want to do it because then I would have to admit that I lived in Eureka, Cal- like Cal- uh, California, and was away from all my family and like all my friends. And I um, wasn't. I'm living this like really great mid twenties out in like a huge in a huge um, metropolitan area. I was in the middle of nowhere with nothing to do, and that was terrifying. I felt like a failure. I felt like a defeat. I, in order to accept that fact, meant I had to admit that I that I had failed and I had screwed up. Now, part of it was part of it, like was the uh, whole economy and that you know whole thing. So, really, even I wouldn't, even say, but like, like I, I could not accept that that's where I was. And so I applied. I mean, I applied to a job where I was I'm one of like 300 people who applied, and I one of 10 who actually had an interview. I, I did everything I could. I tried to start that podcast beside to accept that that's where I was and that's where God uh, wanted me to be for a season. Do you remember, uh, did you ever read that article I sent you via text message um, uh, from crisismagazine.com? Yes, I did Catholic not have couples? a chance. I did. I did not have a chance to respond because there was a lot going on here, but yes. It is, it is amazing. Um, so for those of you who didn't read it, it's a quick article and i'll put it in the show notes if i can remember to do that um it is a quick article that or it's a nice article that describes why are catholic couples who are rock star catholics getting divorced like crazy he brings up the issues of these couples and he said like some of them even had marriage prep with scott hahn and all this stuff 
And he said that they walked away from this with so much um, theological knowledge. They dated. They got engaged their senior year. They took three kinds of marriage preparation, including NFP classes. They got married a month afterwards. I was surrounded by theology 24 hours a day, he said. But while he and his wife overloaded on Catholic stuff, they neglected to develop an authentic spirituality. We went to Mass together on a weekly basis. We did some spiritual things together that were part of family life, not as often as she would have liked. And guess what? She abandoned the marriage and the kids, and he's alone with them. And he said both of us became guilty of self-righteousness. And one of the throwaway comments of the article, or throw, whatever, um, is they, it's often that when couples come in with all the doctrinal answers and intellectual knowledge, it's, they are so unprepared for life. They think that just knowing the church's teaching is enough to deal with this flesh and blood human being across uh, the table from me or next to me on the bed. And, um, and it's so sad that so often these people, they never, they never work on their marriage. They never work on their own spiritual life. Mm-hmm. They are busy. And this is, you hear this from a, a million couples. And I hear this a lot because I'm involved in adult faith formation. I work with couples who are somewhat in crisis. And they'll say the same thing. I mean, you hear the same thing. We were so busy taking care of the kids that when the kids left, she's a stranger, he's a stranger. Or I ended up resenting her because she didn't care about me anymore. I ended up resenting him because all he did was provide money and provide stuff and take us on vacations, but he wasn't really giving his life to me. And to me, that's the sloth that we were talking about, right? The acedia Mm -hmm. of I've surrounded myself with a million moving parts, but the one thing necessary like our lord says to martha about mary the one thing necessary is the one thing we don't want to talk about and this one woman an abandoned mother of five said you have an image that you portray to other people that you're a good catholic but to seek out and recognize how bad marriage problems really are you need to talk about them and so the whole idea is she just thought god would take care of her marriage and that she didn't have to and she's not talking about it with anyone. She's letting the wounds fester. She's probably not even admitting them to herself. And the fact is, even if you have all the knowledge in the Catholic faith, right, your marriage can still implode because it's about dealing with real human persons, right? And we don't do a good job communicating that. I don't do a good job communicating that when I do my marriage prep classes. But man, that's exactly how I viewed my career. Yeah. That do just enough to get by and God will take care of the rest. Mm. And I, that's exactly how I viewed it. You know, so I will take an internship when I have like mounting student debt and I'm not going to get paid. And it was great. I'm, 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 I mean, I'm glad that I did it. I know that like Dave, um, Dave um, does listen. So hi, Dave. Uh, and I miss it terribly. It was so much fun. Best meetings ever. But uh, we used to stand outside and just kick around a soccer ball and, like, talk. It was, it was awesome. It was so productive. <laughs> but there was this element of, like, I think in hindsight, what I would have done and said, okay, I will do this, but it will be 20 hours a week and the other. Or I'll do, I'll do this, like, full time. But then I need to spend 20 hours. I need to tell myself, Luke, you need to spend 20 hours a week. You need to have a job. You can, like, at least pay your bills. Yeah. On the side, like yeah. do like that's what a real internship looks like. Is you do the work, then you have your other job to try, you know. Yep. And instead, yep. I was like, yep. "No, this is what God wants. It'll all work out." <laughs> and, it, 
and I, I think there was this fear of mine that I was inadequate, that it wasn't going to work, that because I have a speech impediment and because of blah, 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 I could yeah, come up with a million excuses of why I needed to be dependent on God. Mm-hmm. And aren't, don't we talk about so much of how we need to be dependent on God? And I, like, in my heart, I, I knew the difference, but I was too scared to talk about it. Yeah. And it's, that's the difference between um, knowledge and wisdom is when we know all the stuff, like we take all the classes and we know all these things, but we don't actually implement it. Mm-hmm. So it's like we have been like receptive to it, but were we really? No, you it was gazed like, at it. You, you gazed at it, really, yeah. You weren't attentive. Yeah. Which is why I'm happy I didn't get married immediately that I kind of really screwed up dating for such a long time. But um, the suffering taught me more. The suffering of that summer without Shannon taught me more about fidelity and commitment than anything else I've ever heard, including Pope John Paul's Theology of the Body and Love and Responsibility. You said this is why you're glad that you didn't get married uh, right right after college. Yeah. And I would agree with that. You also had barely updated Shannon, so I think that would have been very dumb as well. Yeah, we dated – I mean, by the time I left college, we had been dating uh, for – we had been friends for two and a half years or two. Yeah, and we had been dating for over a year. Yeah, that would have been dumb. Um, uh, <laughs> it would have been. I know, as your friend who was there with you during that time period, that would have been very dumb. Yeah. <laughs> um. But then when, like, like when did it turn to when it would not have been dumb? Like, like when did it change and what changed it? Like, so, this is, yeah. Because, like, is... let me just get out, like, uh, let me just say um, uh, one quick thing. Because I feel like when you have the summer of um, disaster, uh, summer of the front lawn, as we call it here, um, <laughs> was that, like, did it change before that? And you just didn't want to like really enter into that, or was that the catalyst for the change? The way I understood it, the way I understood it when I it was the catalyst. The suffering was the catalyst. The suffering was the teacher, right? Me and Matt Matt Covey, God rest his soul. Uh, we used to always talk about this line from Ecclesiastes. What was the line? In much wisdom is much suffering. And he who increases knowledge increases vexation or something like that. I think I might have flipped that around. But um, at its core, I had what I wanted in a Catholic version of the guy who won't commit to his living girlfriend. Now, I didn't live with her. She had a roommate. I had two roommates. Our lives were the same. I was on the couch. You were on the couch. I had three roommates. But our lives were the same. Her two employees were my really good friends who, who I lived with. Then there was you. Then there was Emily that she lived with. All of her friends were my friends, and all of my friends were her friends. And we lived about 40, 30 minutes apart, but in Houston, that's around the corner. You know, you just, it was fine. I spent my daytime doing youth ministry. I spent my evenings with my friends. We went to bars four nights a week, sometimes more, sometimes less. Um, We played uh, Rush Limbaugh episodes while uh, playing uh, Halo on mute over and over again. Um, so I, much rock band. My yeah, my life was set, and I was comfortable. And I remember thinking, I'm not ready to marry Shannon yet because 
you know, I want to develop my whole speaking thing and I want to start a side, you know, a business where I do that ministry full time and I haven't done it yet. Whereas Shannon, she's older than me. She already graduated. And she, she had a job and then she came back for grad school when I met her. And so she has all this life experience beyond me. She's got to be patient because I want that too. And then what happened? Well, what happened was she confronted me and said, listen, we got to move in a positive direction. And I looked at her and said, no, I'm not ready. She never in a million years expected that. And she's like, when I get out of this room, we're done. And we are not getting back together because we had broken up like six times. Anywho, uh, and I was like, okay, if that's what you need to do. Because honestly, the way that I kind of figured it out was I had this thing called freedom that was at the top. And underneath it, but it was right underneath it, but it was still underneath it, was this thing called love. And I loved Shannon, but I really loved my freedom. And Shannon could be a part of my freedom, status quo, or Shannon could ruin it all. And marriage at that moment made it feel like that would ruin it all. And so when I broke up with her, about a month into it, I remember being like, oh, I mean, I remember thinking that was really stupid. But I got to give her time to breathe and sort stuff out. And I got to—I can't just be this emotional guy who ping-pongs back and forth. I have to be one who says, yes, us together forever. And so I deliberately waited for two months. And I prayed every day fervently like, God, I really do feel like Shannon was the one. I got so much clarity in those two months. And then she didn't take me back. She said, now it's me saying no to you. And the thing about that, now that was true suffering as you witness being melodramatic, me collapsing on the (laughs) front lawn of our friend's mother's house after a pool party. Um, I'm not laughing at your pain. I'm sorry. Yeah, you are. No, I'm not. I'm not. Let me also remind you that I had had a multiple-hour conversation with her trying to woo her back. In front of everyone. In front of It wasn't like you were in a corner hidden or something. Everyone is seeing you being like, I remember at one point time we were in the pool, and you're like, you look beautiful. You look beautiful. And we're all like, this is a little weird. (laughs) I had also been drinking to get that liquid courage. But no, that so, so that was for my birthday. Oh, great birthdays. That was That's for right, my yeah. birthday That's on May twenty right, fifth. And that began the summer. And I I remember thinking, and then my uh roommates l- broke the lease and left. And I had and to the leave. Guy, the guy on the couch left. The guy on the couch left. Um and I had a horrible, horrible issue at work, all literally within twenty four hours of each other. And I was like, I got to get out. I got to get out. I got to get out. I'm on a loop. I'm on a loop. I don't know what to do. And so I just called Francisca and said, I want to be a grad student. I'm already enrolled. I want to be an on-campus student. I need to do that. They gave me the approval, all this stuff. I had a handful of events to do during that summer, and I'm like, I was like a zombie. And I just remember every time I thought I would go back to my – when I was living in that apartment, I would go back to my room, which was the, the owner's suite of the apartment, and I would – cry until three or four o'clock in the morning and I'd fall asleep and I'd wake up and I would just start crying all over again for, I mean, for hours. And then I would clean myself off and walk out and be like, I'm I'm all right, guys. I'll I'll see you later. I got to go to work. And I would go to work hungry. I wouldn't eat. I couldn't eat. I would see the church when I would come around the corner and I would have like a panic attack to where I had to pull over on the side of the road and just breathe um, all these things were going on, and and then it, w- it was as if every piece of marital advice that people around me wanted to share decided now's the time to share it. 
And so I would hear things like, like uh, uh, well, I went to a, a counselor for it because I was just lost in depression. And the counselor said, marriage is not, a, a good marriage is not about love. And I was like, what? He goes, it's about commitment. You're committed to this other person. And from that is the love. Like, yes, you love them, but marriage is also about commitment. And I just remember hearing that word and being like, I'm sound like I'm afraid of commitment and being like, why didn't I ever hear this? Like, I just thought it was about love and the desire to will the good for one's beloved and union with the beloved. And, you know, and I would desire to be loved and not used and all the like JP2 language that I've studied for years and talked on for years. I didn't know the first damn thing about actually loving this flesh and blood human being. And so when she took me back, I felt like I, had, I was 20 years older. Uh in terms of how to have a relationship. There is before and after that, I can say just as your friend who, who like who saw you go through that. I, and I think you, I do think you're better because of that. Yeah. But you, you do bring up a very interesting point. Like in the beginning, you had said you, you had basically put like freedom above love. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that, um, that this guy had talked about in, in his, uh, in his talk on sloth is that uh, I believe he said Aquinas, says that like the highest like we're called to be in communion with God and and others but because of where we are in the hierarchical scale of things we're we're not God that's going to demand a thing from us for God and then for you know, like uh, like others as well and i think it's kind of where this plays into like this is why i, I think this is the one of the biggest issues of our time is because we all have such autonomy over our lives now. Yeah. We like like we live in a post enlightenment world where you can literally have a whole life. We can we can change our bodies in a variety of ways. We can have a whole different life on a computer. Like we can change so much of who and what we think we are. And it's ingrained in our heads that what is the most from the time I mean in all of our mute all of our movies all of our like all the music our entire culture is built on this idea of I can define my life the way that I want to yeah. I am in control I, I can did let it, it go my, my way. way yeah 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 like this whole uh, I still don't like anyways uh, it's a great song but like <laughs> uh, I love Rick Sinatra uh, the but. But my point is that this idea of um, how I can't sacrifice this one thing because this is what's this is the most important thing, which you know is my freedom, and you almost have to go through like, like you're basically taking the red pill and going into the matrix. Yeah, and your well, eyes in, hurt. In, you in Christian language, it's getting out of the matrix. Sorry. Yeah, in Christian language, it's your idol has to die, like you have to kill it, and you don't want to because it's that thing that's so close to you. You don't know, and I'm not just talking about a sin. I'm talking about freedom. You know, it's like it's this thing that you define yourself by that's not Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. The thing that I defined myself was my career, my friends, my girlfriend, and this future where I'm going to be traveling and giving talks. And I let that become the thing that prevented me from actually having friends and a wife and no, a career. I, I, dude, I did the exact same thing. Like, I would have rather been in a miserable uh, a miserable like relationship than f- no relationship at all like i can yeah. i remember 
oh, this one girl that I dated like said she just wanted me to do the big grand gesture. What? If I could just do the big thing, she like she just wanted that from me, and I was like, what do you mean? I'm doing like. I call you, and you know, like I'm like, because um, I used to call her every morning. I would always, I'm wake up at like four a.m. because it would it was in like her time. It was time for her to wake up, and all this, you know, all this like I, like I'm like we. My whole life is built around us, and like I kind of build my life off of a, a schedule so like uh, uh, we can talk. But in reality, I knew that we weren't a good fit. And as much as I cared about her, I just didn't. Re- this isn't a, what I wanted. And so I was never going to do the big thing because I was – and I was honestly – I was also too scared to do it. Yeah. Because what if it didn't work? <laughs> what if you – what if you had kissed the girl, Luke? Yeah. <laughs> from last week's episode. <laughs> well, the grand you know gesture, funny? Luke. <laughs> okay. So let's, let's actually let's – let's go to the opposite side of that. Okay. In 2010, I went to counseling, and I actually brought that up. I yeah. brought up that girl, and I said, you know, I am I'm definitely over this. There's a part of me that always just thinks, what if I had been more attractive, more outgoing, all this stuff? And actually, when I look I'm back on myself, I'm like, damn, you are good looking. Anyways, my point, though, is um, I was like – and it's, it's, and it's not like I was like brooding over the fact that like I thought that like I should be with her. It was just kind of like a more of, the, again, the what ifs. That's the what ifs I was, I'm talking about earlier when you're ingrained in um sloth. Your whole past is a gigantic what if. Yeah. And that's the what if that was really on my mind at that point in time. And he just goes, there's no guarantee that you would have been happy. Right. There's no guarantee that it would have um, worked out. There's no guarantee that you even oh, I would have liked her. <laughs> like, there's no guarantee. Like, you don't know any of that. So yeah. you can't apply a narrative that doesn't exist. That's fake. <laughs> that's <laughs> thing a simulation. My- yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I was like, oh, my gosh, you're right. Like, I hadn't, you know. I just like I, I we could have I mean like yeah like we could have dated and then it could, I probably would have broken up with her because I didn't want to be in a committed um relationship going into college yeah <laughs> you know so I probably would have ended it yeah and man so much of this stuff like this is why I think this is such an important thing is that um. Like, this really defines, I think, a lot of our lives and why we made the choices that we did. Yeah. Do you know that I was so scared to get a job? I had always had a job during high school, and I was really proud of the fact that I had a I like, you know, I worked my butt off, and I really liked it. I was, I was the guy who had a job. I mean, Dorothy all my Lane. friends had jobs. But, yeah, but, I, I mean, from the time that I was 15, I, I had a job, and I was really good at it, and... I liked it, and I remember getting to college and wanting a job, but didn't want to do like manual like was and like because you all got a yeah. job over at the um, over at the phone center, and I was like, well, I can't do that. I've got a I've got a speech impediment. So instead of trying to f- either like work through it, find like find um, nothing else, I just didn't do it. I didn't have a job my first year on yeah. campus, so I, I I went from being the guy who was always working to the guy who didn't, and like it was like. Kind of one of the like it was such a dumb thing, yeah. Because it was such a, like it like robbed myself of a part of myself that actually because I, I would go home and work all the time, <laughs> and then you know, but it just I don't know it just was or I would think like I want to clean the dorms. That's been you know you, you find like a thousand excuses because yeah. it's not what you want. There's a great line from need. The Office. Uh, it's one of my favorite lines, honestly, of anything ever. It is so good. 
but um, it's when uh, Jan Levinson Gould is trying, just Jan Levinson, um, is trying to convince Pam to do that art class in Philadelphia. And she's like, well, I don't think I can because of this. And, you know, we also have this and we all that. And then she just interrupts her. She goes, there's a million reasons not to do something. And I love that. I love that idea. It's like there are a million reasons to not do something, risk something, step out. But there's probably one really good reason that lays there that just trumps them all. You know? And, uh, I mean, that's the part of discernment that is killing me. Father Mike Schmitz has this line, when I discovered discernment, I stopped making decisions. <laughs> but real discernment is like, okay, I got two really good things here that I need to compare. Or I got three or I got ten. You know, or it's how do I go forward with this one thing that I really want to do? I just listened to a podcast from a fellow par podcaster, Paula Pant. <laughs> and uh, she, uh, she interviewed a youth pastor who was a youth pastor and just spinning wheels. And he burned himself out and his wife was pregnant. And she's like, I have a roommate. I don't have a husband. And uh, he was, he, and so he quit his job. He tried to change things. He changed it for a little bit. It kind of snapped back. So he just quit, and now he's a successful entrepreneur who is a public speaker and blah, 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 and does all these speaking things and trains speakers. But the reality was for him, he had um, he had to burn the bridges in order to do the thing. And so he worked five little jobs to have the flexibility to go and do the big thing that he was that he was aching for. And I think there is moments of clarity there where it's like the reason why we live with so much what-ifs is because fear – doesn't cause us to do things we regret it causes us to not do things that we'll always regret what well, if, it's, uh, what, uh, if uh, what if uh, 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 i'm a wisdom and perseverance right yeah here's this thing that you really want to do god has really put it on your heart well this is this like this means i'm gonna have to work five jobs in order to do this like that's the wisdom right yeah. It's so hard and, because I feel like I'm working five jobs and I'm getting further away from the goal. So there has to be a re I mean, it's just the same old tired thing. And I'm just getting super nervous. I have, you know, four trips in the month of March and I'm just away from my family so much. So I'm just thinking like, how can I do this? How can I do this in such a way that it builds up my family? It doesn't tear us down. Well, you have to set the like you have to say this is the goal. Yeah. Like like you have to actually get con con so that the goal is that I'm that I'm pulling in five thousand. That is just a hypothetical number. Yeah, no, no, no. Um, I have I know. have concrete numbers. I one hundred percent do. Um, but like, but, but do you have a thing like this is what that would look like? This is what you know. Yeah, literally all written down. So then, what's preventing you from actually act, actually doing it? Just revving up, and the fact that all the things I want to do, I don't have any brain cells left over for. I'll tell you what, the carnivore diet's helped out. <laughs> it's made my, it has given, I mean, like, literally, I have more, I'm more uh, awake than I've ever been in my entire life. I literally walked down the hallway and I saw someone who was physically fit and I was like, is this what your every day is like? You're not just drinking coffee to stay awake all the time? Like, is this really how you people live? You skinny, fit, muscular people who eat well? Is this what it's like? And she's like, um, I feel uncomfortable, but yes. <laughs> I'm just trying to go make a copy. Yeah. <laughs> no, but the, the reality is, like, there are only so many creative hours in your day, and I'm going to have to start reprioritizing some stuff. But um, last week, I woke up at 3 o'clock in the morning, and I sat here, and I was wide awake. I had gone to bed at 8 a.m., so that was fine. 
And I got up, I came downstairs, I made a little coffee, I drank water, I worked out, I did some stuff, I sat down and I edited all of Catching Foxes. And then I recorded uh, a podcast, uh, a solo podcast that went out on Every Niche Up Owl last week. And then I recorded one with um, Father Gregory Pine, Matt Frad's dude, um, who also, Becca Pine, you remember Becca Pine from Franciscan, it's her younger brother. Oh, yeah. Oh, He's, great. That's Do you awesome. ever listen to those episodes of Pints of the Aquinas with Gregory Pine, Father Gregory? Uh, I haven't listened to any podcast really in a while. Okay. I'm all about audiobooks. I'm all about my John D. Rockefeller. Fair right enough. But only uh, have seven and a half hours left. <laughs> nice. 40-hour book. He, uh... He's amazing. He's got so much knowledge, nice. and he's such a peppy bastard. Well, if if he's a pine, he's got to be great. So, Thanks to our friends at CatholicSocial.media. Check out their webinar. And Ryan Krieger at One Parish. Their Silbo product. <laughs>